You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Andrew Hammond, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations from authors, scholars and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes and whatever platform you might be listening from. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. like to thank our friends at BetterHelp for sponsoring this week's podcast. You'll hear more about them later, but first, let's meet our guests. Today is the first in a two-partist podcast where we look at the topic of Chinese communist espionage. To discuss this topic, I have here with me Dr. Matthew Brazil. Dr. Brazil is a non-resident fellow at the Jamestown Foundation and he worked in Asia for over 20 years as an army officer, diplomat, and corporate security manager. His co-author, Peter Mattis, is the deputy staff director of the Congressional Executive Commission on China, which monitors human rights and the rule of law in China. So there's an exciting offer that we have with uh, both of the authors. They're going to provide autographed copies of their book for the best follow-up questions after the second episode. So I'll be giving more details about that in part two, but this is part one, which is a really interesting and exciting overview of Chinese communist espionage. Almost one in five of the world's population live in the People's Republic of China. So it seems self-evident that Chinese communist espionage is something that we should break down in SpyCast. Matthew, thanks for joining us today in that endeavor. I was wondering if to begin, you could tell the listeners a little bit more about your project and what you and your co-author set out to do. Sure, we had from the start, the idea that there are too many myths and, uh, and wrong assumptions about CCP espionage floating about <laughs> out there. <clears throat> um, and CCP, by the way, means Chinese Communist Party. So from the start, we wanted to try to bust some of those myths and bring data 
into the conversation because one thing we've noticed in a lot of writing, both in in the uh, news media and also in other books about this topic, is that there's a lot of speculation, a lot of uh, almost magical thinking about CCP espionage, and this doesn't lead to any sort of good conclusion other than maybe selling books. It leads to um, misapprehensions. It leads to uh, uh, problems in analysis. It leads to to panic, and it can lead to uh, a racist response in society uh, against ordinary Chinese people. So that's what we were set out to do. We wanted to bring some data into the conversation and start to introduce the topic in a more rational way. What are some of the main myths and misperceptions that you wanted to dispel? One of the big ones is the idea that tens of thousands of Chinese people all over the world, including some running your local restaurant, might be spies for Beijing. This is a problem because uh, for one reason, for one thing, the it's always been a central tenet of uh, Chinese espionage and indeed of CCP operations themselves that Chinese society is full of people who don't go along with the CCP's program. At times, uh, quite often, they've been called enemies within. Chinese communist history is full of, uh, of purges against enemies within, starting during the revolution. Uh, the, the biggest one began in 1931, the so-called Futian incident, and going on into the Yan'an period in 1942 to 44, uh, and going on past that, as soon as uh, the 1949 victory occurred, there were internal purges in society to go after actual uh, actual enemies in large number, that is uh, leftover uh, uh, Guomindang or nationalist soldiers and people who had worked in the previous government uh, and people who were just opposed to the communist program. So a lot of these purges have been paranoid in nature, but they've also been um, they've also been uh, practical in nature, um, and and so this is one of the major problems that uh, that the Chinese Communist Party and the their security services do not just go out and and recruit people on mass to do anything except maybe participate in a political campaign. They certainly don't do it to, to uh, get people to participate in espionage. If someone is chosen to participate in espionage, the more likely scenario is that they've been vetted for political reliability, because after all, they're being turned loose uh, in a foreign society, and that they've been vetted as well to determine their psychological reliability and, uh, and also the degree of leverage that can be held over them, either with a family inside China or uh, by some other means. And so it may be true that, that um, significant numbers of people going to study physics overseas, for example, are asked to come and report on what they've learned once a year when they come home for uh, Lunar New Year and things like that. But as far as actual espionage operations go, whenever these are brought up by writers, they usually bring up cases like the, one of the classic cases, Chi Mok, 
in Los Angeles who was a PLA intelligence officer who swam over to Hong Kong from the mainland, posed as a refugee, eventually was admitted to the United States and gained US citizenship, but all the time he was, um, he was a clandestine agent for Chinese military intelligence. And he, among other things, he brought to China um, some of the industrial secrets regarding quiet submarine engines. And uh, with another officer uh, of the PLA, he, uh, who was an agent actually, uh, the um, technical secrets of the space shuttle and other aspects of the space program. So the more likely scenario, whenever it comes to one of these cases is of a purposely identified and vetted agent who is trained and inserted into the right place and follows standard espionage tradecraft. Earlier this year, the FBI director, Christopher Wray, said that if you're an American adult, it is more likely than not that China has stolen your personal data. Do you think that the FBI director is overestimating the case, Matt? When he says that, I think he's thinking about the OPM hack from um, 2015, I think it was. Uh, the office personnel management hack that uh, that harvested uh, tens of millions of people's um, data, and some hacks that have been initiated against um, airlines and hotel chains. I'd be interested to hear more details about that assertion, because most American adults means hundreds of millions of people, so so that's that's a big number. Uh, at the same time, uh, I would say a significant number of people, including anybody who's ever worked for the US government and had a low level security clearance, um, was harvested in the OPM hack. Um, a significant number of people certainly have had data stolen uh, and it's residing in Beijing and, and whether or not it's ever used, of course, in the, that great number is an open question. Mm -hmm. Do you know if the Chinese intelligence agencies are aware of your research, Matt? They are, uh, certainly through the publication of the book, but actually back in 2004, when I first began my late in life doctoral dissertation, I was regularly traveling to China and I made a visit to um, the China Institutes for Contemporary International Relations or kicker, as we like to call it. And uh, basically, at the urging of, um, at, of one of my PhD advisors, who had visited the kicker bookstore, um, he urged me to just go knock on the door. Um, at the time and now, um, the China Institutes for Contemporary International Relations is uh, uh, a semi-public open institution. However, it also houses the analytic effort for the Ministry of State Security. So I went and knocked on the door. I was admitted, told to sit in a room, um, and was interviewed briefly. And then uh, a gentleman came back in and said, you know, we're not going to give you a, an interview about your research, but, uh, but here is a pile of books. And so somebody else brought in um, seven books that had been published by their press. Um, and they were useful. Uh, and that gets 
that if you want to go into a segue about uh, what is their party line and how did we do the research, then this would be a good time to do that. Yeah, I mean, I should have been more specific, Matt. Obviously, they'll be aware of it with the publication of your book. I guess I was asking, are you aware of it through any quote-unquote other means? Sure. Uh, during that time, I was working as a corporate investigator, and one of my major responsibilities was to do investigations in China, uh, some of which had to do with things like um, uh, finding uh, hackers uh, and interviewing people who were suspected of passing information outside of the company, uh, technical information and other forms of information. And there were times when, um, when I would be interviewed by the police about what I was doing. So they were certainly aware of that. I was on their radar screen for that purpose. Um, and also later when I lived in China as uh, a site security manager for an electronics company, um, I was uh, regularly in contact with the police for various reasons because uh, where there is electronics manufacturing, there is money. And where there's money, there are thieves. And so that was a regular part of the duty was to liaise with the police. And, uh, and uh, during that time, <clears throat> the police uh, uh, already knew about my research and they actually assisted me in, uh, it, it was a different time back then, a lot more friendly between our two great nations, but uh, the police actually arranged for me to interview a uh, revolutionary hero about whom a movie was made. Uh, her name was, uh, she's uh, deceased now, but her name was Wang Shirong. She's uh, profiled in the book. Uh, and that was a very memorable interview. Um, so yeah, they were aware and they didn't try to do anything bad. Uh, there were never any death threats or any threats of any other kind. Um, I'm not sure I'd like to travel to China right now because now is a different time. But uh, but on the whole, they did not try to. Uh, it was interesting that they did not even try to influence the research. So to continue to help us get our heads around the Chinese intelligence landscape, I was wondering if you could sketch out for us the major players, Matt. What are some of the main institutions? And could you compare them to, say, the American intelligence landscape? Does China, for example, have an equivalent of the FBI and the CIA? Sure. Well, it's structured differently with some similar characteristics. The Ministry of State Security is the main civilian intelligence uh, gathering arm, but they don't only do foreign intelligence, they also do domestic counterespionage. Prior to 1983, that was the responsibility of the Ministry of Public Security, which is the second uh, uh, major, one of the second major institutions. The Ministry of Public Security nowadays uh, is focused less on counterespionage and more on what the Communist Party considers to be subversive activities, which includes religious activity uh, that's not sanctioned by the State uh, Bureau on Religion, uh, including the Falun Gong, including underground uh, uh, Christian churches and so on and against anti-communist uh, uh, democracy protesters and um, democracy activists and, and in some cases, uh, public security 
ministry is involved in surveilling non-government organizations from from outside of China. Um, but the Ministry of State Security now has, since the November 2015 reorganization, the Ministry of State Security now has primary responsibility for foreign intelligence operations on the civilian side. Then there's the military. And the military has always been very important. Um, back before a few years ago, the PLA second department, as it was then called, that uh, did human intelligence operations was much more active <clears throat> overseas than was the Ministry of State Security and had much more capability than they did. They are now known after the reorganization as the uh, PLA Intelligence Bureau. So they do human intelligence and it's an open question how much they're doing right now and whether or not they are focused solely on military intelligence matters and military technology in particular, uh, or whether they have a wider um, set of responsibilities. Then there's the strategic support force, which is part of the PLA, the People's Liberation Army. And the strategic support force encompasses uh, at least two previous um, departments under the general staff, the third department and the fourth department, which uh, did signal intelligence and, uh, and other technical intelligence, uh, such as ELINT, uh, electronic intelligence. Um, that is the measurement of uh, signals from missiles when they're launched in order to figure out what kind of missile they are and so on. So that's the strategic support force. Um, to my knowledge, they don't have agents overseas running around with uh, false identities and such. They are more technical. They're more like the National Security Agency here in the United States um, or GCHQ uh, in Britain. What are some of the strengths and weaknesses of Chinese communist espionage? Are there particular agencies that are strong and others are not so strong, for example? Are there particular types of intelligence collection that are strong compared to others? In summary, the major problem they have <clears throat> over the years and even up till today is significant internal corruption, uh, the regular employment of torture, which goes back to the 30s at least, um, and ideological constraints on intelligence analysis. Uh, for example, the exaggerated belief in uh, capital as the sole arbiter of policy uh, in a country like the U.S. and the inevitable decline of capitalism in favor of socialism. Um, <clears throat> it becomes difficult if you're an analyst to get past these things. And so this is one reason why um, the state security ministry will sometimes approach a journalist and offer to pay them money to just write about matters that they're concerned with. So they can take that paper um, by a journalist or an academic and just send it over to somebody who's interested in that question without fear of committing an ideological error uh, that could be a career ending move. So that's, that's one of the, um, th those are some of the disadvantages. Another one is, um, um, which could be an advantage, I suppose, is the default 
that they have to using mass surveillance of the citizenry as the best means of societal control and the best way to pursue counterespionage. Now, this has roots in in uh, Yan'an from the late 30s and into the 40s up until the 1949 victory and uh, and then in the early People's Republic. Because uh, during that time, of course, China was uh, isolated from the rest of the world except for the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact nations. And there was uh, more of an ability to control information than there is today in the internet age. And so societal control um, was easier to accomplish using um, using the mass line, as it's called uh, in China. That is uh, the use of, of uh, Communist Party committees down to the local level that uh, organized citizens to um, to pursue political campaigns. But when the internet became a part of um, society, there was a brief period when uh, it was difficult to control information. And this led to a lot of work on the Chinese side to find ways to construct what is often referred to as the Great Firewall. So that has led to uh, lar a large amount of success on the part of um, the Communist Party. And it's also led, of course, to the development of artificial intelligence to be combined with um, uh, the modern type of mass surveillance, which includes uh, closed circuit TV cameras uh, all over the place and such. So this is, this is both, in my opinion, uh, a, uh, a defect in society because it uh, leads to widespread dissatisfaction, at least among some people. Um, but it's also an advantage because, because China has once again become uh, just as hard of, a, of an intelligence target as it used to be under Mao. Wow. So in current affairs journals and the foreign policy press, we often hear of the rise of China. So I was wondering, to what extent does the trajectory of Chinese intelligence map onto China's strategic trajectory? So I guess what I'm trying to say is, we hear about the rise of China. Does that also mean that there's a rise in Chinese intelligence? Are those agencies becoming more powerful, or more competent, or is it something different? I think it's true that they're becoming more competent. And, and I think that, that um, a lot of this goes with China's uh, expanded foreign policy, its more aggressive foreign policy. I think the jury is still out about exactly how much correlation there is between intelligence operations and foreign policy. It's likely that there is a lot of correlation. And one reason I say that is that before a couple of years ago, it was um, unheard of that the US might be able to catch an intelligence officer in the act and bring them to the United States. But in 2018, and that's exactly what happened with the um, capture in Belgium of Shri Enjun, a deputy section leader in the Jiangsu State Security Bureau. And the reason he was captured was that he was engaged in a rather aggressive operation to identify and cultivate and recruit 
an engineer inside of General Electric working on the uh, ultra fast um, and ultra hot jet engines that they were developing using uh, carbon based uh, fan blades, which don't burn up when things get really hot like metal does. Um, so that's, that's one indicator that they're more aggressively pursuing intelligence operations with China's uh, emergence as a great power. Um, but I think a lot more research is necessary to actually pin that down. We'll be right back after this. And now a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Who are some of the major partners that China's intelligence agencies have? Who would they see as natural allies, for example? In answering that question, I have to first note that um, all of our research is open source. And, and so we did not use any classified information at all in, um, in doing this research, writing this book, and in continuing the research that um, we're both doing. Um, having said that, there are some strong possibilities, uh, and the two strong possibilities I would posit are Pakistan and North Korea. However, how much they really trust each other, I think, is an open question that requires a lot more research. Can you give us a sense of how this all comes together, Matt? So in the United States, for example, you've got the ODNI, the National Security Council, various agencies so there's a structure and a process that tries to coordinate everything is there something similar in china how do these agencies relate to one another is it divide and conquer are they competing against one another or is there a high degree of collaboration previous to the 2015 reorganization this was one of the major problems of Chinese communist intelligence was the um, difficulty in coordination and the turf battles between the agencies I named a few minutes ago. It actually reached the point where there was some hostility between the agencies, particularly between the Ministry of State Security and the military itself. Um, however, since that time, part of the reorganization that uh, was initiated by Xi Jinping in 2015 um, was to create the Central State Security Commission. Now, previously there had been a party overseer 
that was the Central Political and Legal Commission. But it seems in retrospect that it was um, only partially effective in coordinating operations and in setting out uh, turf and, and, and uh, settling disputes. But now it seems as if the CSSC, the Central State Security Commission is being more effective at that. Um, but again, this will require some more uh, study and uh, interviews with more knowledgeable people on the inside, I think, in order to nail that down, how, how effective are they? Could you give us a sense of how China looks at the world? So how has history shaped the way that China views contemporary international relations? How does it view the United States? How does it view NATO? How does it view the West in general? This brings us to one of the difficulties on the Chinese side, and that is the historical baggage that accompanies their attempts to analyze what's going on in foreign countries. One of the major elements of that historical baggage, one of the one of the bigger suitcases, so to speak, would be China's century of humiliation, uh, as they as they call it, that began in 1842 with uh, China's defeat in the first Opium War and ended in the 1949 uh, CCP victory. The century of humiliation was um, characterized by foreign powers controlling China's tax system, uh, its uh, external taxes of uh, imports and exports, by foreign powers establishing very large areas of influence uh, where they would uh, not have gigantic colonies in China, but, with the, but where foreign powers were a, um, uh, a powerful force in local affairs. The British, for example, um, all, all along the Yangtze River uh, and in South China and in Tibet uh, and around Shanghai, the uh, Russians in uh, northern China along the border, the French uh, near the border with Vietnam uh, and so on, the Germans in Shandong province, which uh, is the home of Qingdao beer and decent chocolate uh, gifts from the Germans. So, um, one of the problems there is that um, there's almost a knee-jerk reaction to the idea that foreign powers are ganging up on China. Uh, at the same time, the Chinese Communist Party has been very adept at uh, dividing and conquering. Uh, in the news lately uh, was the, uh, the uh, news item about an internal intelligence report in Germany that was suppressed by uh, interests that were more focused on bilateral trade than they were on national security. Um, and indeed, it, Germany has been more focused on trade than they have been on national security when it comes to China. Uh, in the United States, uh, up until a few years ago, um, the Chinese were very adept at enlisting American businesses um, to lobby the US government to um, 
to cultivate better relations with China, preserve the economic relationship, and downplay human rights and other um, such uh, uh, concerns. Unfortunately, uh, for the Chinese side, they have uh, probably gone a little bit too far in pushing against um, business and uh, enabling their own national champions in, in the marketplace there and, and state-owned enterprises. And U.S. businesses have become um, disenchanted with, uh, with the Chinese market, although they're still making a lot of money there. According to the U.S.-China Business Council's uh, uh, recent annual survey, of businesses, uh, at least 81% of American businesses are still making money in China. Um, the margins have gone down, but they're mostly still making money and they, uh, they mostly still want to stay there. Um, at the same time, that interesting survey found that in 2019, only 5% of US businesses had been asked to transfer technology. But in the 2020 survey, that number rose to 13%. Of course, it's never been anything close to 50% or 100% because most businesses that go there don't have uh, technology that's useful to the five-year plan or to military development. Um, but it's striking that that number has more than doubled in just one year. So it's been good to get a sense of the various agencies map, some of the strengths and weaknesses, some of their allies, and so forth. I'd like to turn now to the question of culture and the role that culture may or may not play in Chinese communist espionage. I guess the first question that comes to mind is, is there a Chinese way of doing espionage, just like we hear of, say, an American way of war? That's a really interesting question. Uh, one of the uh, early problems at least early in the 20th century, of for British espionage was the reliance on uh, old school connections and uh, the lack of vetting of uh, candidates who would be receiving access to sensitive classified information and so forth. That's uh, that's a very well known problem. The Cambridge Five. Yeah, there we are. <laughs> My five Cambridge friends. Um, so. Um, I would say that we were not so much trying to distinguish a Chinese type of operation. Rather, we were trying to use data to accurately describe what the CCP is doing in the espionage realm uh, so that we could not only underestimate uh, what's going on, but not overestimate it and not overreact. Um, I'd say in summary that, that CCP espionage is mostly conducted like that of other nations, um, except for um, a couple differences, the major one being the priority on industrial technology finding and uh, stealing one way or the other industrial technology to benefit state-owned enterprises and national champions that are not state-owned such as uh, Huawei and, um, and uh, Lenovo. Uh, and also, of course, to find and acquire military technology to promote military modernization. Um, so they mostly do the same things that, that we do, but with a few differences like um, the one I just described. Okay. And I guess the follow-up question to that is, 
Is there a Chinese communist way of doing espionage as compared to uh, uh, the communist Soviet Union or compared to the American liberal democracy way mm. of doing espionage? Liberal democracies tend to have legislative and judicial oversight and scrutiny by an independent press. Uh, not to mention countless books uh, uh, like Legacy of Ashes, uh, written in with uh, sharp critiques of the uh, American intelligence community. This doesn't prevent every abuse, but it makes abusive behavior harder to sustain, uh, even within the secret realm of uh, intel the intelligence community. Um, however, in the communist nations in general, including China, Espionage has always been a ruling party function with no such oversight. Just like, uh, as some analysts like to say, the People's Liberation Army is the armed wing of the Chinese Communist Party. So the Ministry of State Security is its uh, secret service. The, um, the MSS, the, the People's Liberation Army, and the CCP departments that also engage in some secret activity, which uh, principally are the International Liaison Department, and the United Front Work Department are organizations uh, entirely beholden to a political party. So not only do they follow the party's uh, directions, just as the justice system follows the party's directions and is not independent, um, but they also have to at least appear to be true believers in party doctrine. So that is, uh, I think, a set of major characteristics that distinguish the communist way of doing espionage from those in the liberal democracies. Okay, and I guess for many of our listeners, when they think of Chinese espionage, many of them will go back to grad school or staff college and they'll think, oh, I think I remember something in the final chapter of Sun Tzu. Um, that was all about uh, espionage and spies. Um, <laughs> do, you, <laughs> do you think that that, that is, um, you know, that is helpful at all? Yeah, that's a really interesting case. Um, one of my thesis advisors uh, was James Mulvenon, uh, whom we've mentioned in previous conversations, and he was uh, one of the co-authors of Chinese Industrial Espionage, uh, Technology Acquisition and Military Modernization. Um, and he's a, a contributor to a, a new book called China's Quest for Foreign Technology Beyond Espionage. So James, I, I can only paraphrase it, but James has a, mm -hmm. a quote he likes to use that uh, the usefulness of any PowerPoint presentation on China is directly um, not proportional is, is 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 inversely proportional to the number of Sun Tzu quotes in the presentation. <laughs> now, having said that, um, Sun Tzu wrote about five kinds of spies, including internal spies, um, uh, dead spies, and so on. And I won't go into all that, but but these are interesting examples of um, of early uh, and the most probably the most advanced thought uh, at the time. Uh, about how to conduct espionage by inserting agents into um, into an enemy's uh, camp, by sending an agent who can go into the enemy's camp and then come back and report, 
um, by turning an agent around and using them against the enemy to feed them false information. So those are the earliest writings I'm aware of about how to um, conduct intelligence using different methods. And, and they, um, I think, have been adopted not only by China, but by the rest of the world as well, at least in part. Um, now, having said that, I think that Chinese communist espionage is far more influenced by their own early experiences as well as Russian training. For example, um, the, their first uh, head of, of their special operations branch that conducted assassinations, intelligence work, executive protection, and so on, was named Gu Shenzhang. He and uh, one of another early leader named Chen Gang were sent to the Soviet Union for training for several months, where they learned um, things like assassination techniques and also how to run an agent. And then going beyond that, there were early successes that are taught just like um, um, just like the assault on Brecourt um, um, in at the beginning of the D-Day operation by Richard Winters, which is uh, featured in the Band of Brothers book and uh, television series, Brecourt Manor, um, is taught to people at West Point today. So is uh, the Three Heroes of the Dragon's Lair that is discussed in our book is taught to recruits of the Ministry of State Security and possibly beyond that too. Um, these early successes are, um, are pointed to as, uh, as uh, not only examples of daring do, but also uh, examples of how you build a, a uh, spy ring and how you use it against an enemy. So I think those are very important um, examples. I've just realized that one of the questions I should have asked was, is Chinese communist espionage more influenced by Karl Marx or Sun Tzu? But um, I think that ship has sailed, so uh, <laughs> I'll move on to it. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 non-profit. If you want to donate to the museum, or if you're local and would like to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information.